Welcome into Chasing Interesting. I'm Craig Hoffman. Thanks so much for checking out the podcast. A great one for you today with Josh Birch. He is the founder of Neighbors United for DC Statehood. Now, as you likely know, if you have listened to the podcast before, especially the two most recent episodes that weren't radio best ofs, I live in the state of Virginia, just outside of Washington, DC. I'm a resident of Reston, and you know that because I interviewed people who were running to represent me in the Virginia state legislature. I also have people who represent me at the federal level, uh, Tim Kaine and Mark Warner, the two senators from the state of Virginia, both of whom I voted for in the past and likely would again. Uh, they've done a great job and advocating for a number of things, including D.C. statehood. But as someone who is also looking eventually to move possibly into the district, uh, it is very personal for me as well to get representation for D.C. Not to mention, it is something that is just a moral matter that seems fairly obvious to me. And so I wanted to talk to someone who is in the fight, someone who is in it from DC, not just for DC, but from DC. And I reached out to uh, my guy, Michael Martinez, who is the executive producer for Pod Save America and Pod Save the World out at Crooked Media and who worked at WAMU in DC for a decade. And DC born and bred, uh, obviously very involved in the political game. And I said, Michael, who'd be a good person to talk to? If you were booking a guest on this topic, who would you talk to? And he said, talk to Josh. And so we're going to talk to Josh. And without further ado, here's my conversation with Josh Birch, founder of Neighbors United for DC State. Josh, this thought of doing this podcast came to me when I was sitting in my girlfriend's apartment in DC going, if I lived here full time and I had a DC license, not the Virginia one that I do, I would literally have no one to be able to call to say, hey, I, wa I want to be able to have a representative, which to me seems like a, this could be a very short podcast. Like that's it. That's the argument. So I wanted to, to dive into this as not only the, the DC statehood argument as a whole and give some background, some history for anybody that might want it but also as a resource for D.C. residents to know what they can do since they can't, like I, a resident of Virginia, call their senator and say, please pass this uh, because they don't have that representation. So um, that's what I'd love to accomplish uh, with you, and, and I'm excited to, to do it here. And so let's start with your personal background and interest in this issue. Or are you a D.C. lifelong guy? Like, How did you get to be someone who is actively involved in this issue and fighting for it on the front lines? Yeah, no, I was, um, well, first, thanks for having me. Um, appreciate any, any and all opportunity to, to spread the good word about DC statehood. Absolutely. You know, I was born and raised in DC. Um, when I was a teenager, I really realized that I, you know, that my parents didn't have voting representation for them being in DC. And I realized that when I turned 18, I wasn't going to have that either. And it didn't seem right to me, but I'll, I'll be honest, I didn't do a damn thing about it. And, <laughs> um, you know, went off to college and, and then I did the Peace Corps and then I moved back to D.C. And when I moved back to D.C. Um, in my early 20s, it was when I started to get really frustrated by not having um, voting representation in Congress. And, and but even then, I, I, would, I would yell at my TV when I was mad about, you know, greater world issues that I couldn't contribute to because I didn't have members of Congress of my own. And I just didn't do anything. And then in 2000, early in 2011, when my, um, it was a few months after my daughter, our firstborn, um, so she was three months old. Uh, she, 
when President Obama and Speaker Boehner were trying to keep the federal government open and they were doing negotiations, they used D.C.'s local laws as a bargaining chip to keep the federal government open. And so they manipulated the district budget, saying that we couldn't spend our own tax dollars on abortion services for low-income women. And that was part of the deal that they reached. And President Obama said to Speaker Boehner, John, I'm not happy about it, but I'll give you D.C. abortion. And to me, having you know, having turned 18 and knowing what it's like not to have equal representation and then having um, a child of my own and there's sort of that parental instinct sort of kicked in. It was sort of my love of democracy and like being a responsible dad sort of all came together when what I felt like it was a bit of a betrayal by President Obama, who district residents had overwhelmingly supported. And then he used our local laws as a bargaining chip, not because he wanted to, but because he could. And it really sort of showed me that as long as as the district has this unequal status, even our friends can turn on us because they can, and they'll use whatever chip that they need to, to get an overall task done. And so, you know, I created this group. I was mad. Um, I didn't really know what to do, but I knew doing nothing or yelling at C-SPAN was no longer an option. And so we started, um, I went to a neighbor of mine who's, um, you know, born and raised in D.C., grew up really in the 1950s in the district, went to Dunbar High School, was active in the civil rights movement. And he and I organized like a talk in my living room for 13 of our neighbors about like what D.C. residents could do to push for statehood. And sort of from that, over the course of the next couple of years, we were having living room talks around the district, telling, talking to people about why statehood was important, trying not to get distracted with other side issues like one vote in the house or budget autonomy, but really focus on what equality is, which is statehood. And over that, you know, and then over the last decade, we've, you know, we have thousands of people as sort of members of our group. I mean, we're a loose knit group of, if you want to do something, if you want to give us five minutes a month, we'll give you something to do. If you want to give us five hours a month, we'll give you something to do. Um, But we really have focused on education and outreach and then really congressional advocacy. So really, you know, back in the day when we could knock on doors in the halls of Congress, we would go and meet with Senate staff and House staff and say, we want your boss to support D.C. statehood. And we continue to do that, although it's now changed. So it's emails and calls and Zoom meetings um, as opposed to in-person meetings, which we which we used to really do a lot of. Yeah. In some ways, laws are a light switch. They pass and then they're whatever in the law says this is when it's it's effective, it's implemented, and it goes from off to on. But in reality, the work you describe is much more true and much more accurate. You're chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, and then eventually something breaks. Well, the wall has not broken yet in the last decade that you've been doing this work. What kind of chips do you feel like you've had? How have you seen the support change? And specifically then to kind of even focus that more. What arguments work? What has been effective in shipping away? Yeah, I mean, I think we've seen three real big changes in the statehood movement over the last decade. I think the first is locally. Um, activists at the grassroots level have really focused on the statehood movement. And it used to be people were pushing for one vote in the House or or budget autonomy or some other thing other than statehood. And there's really been a coalescing over the last 10 years Um, So really, over the last six years, all the different groups that are out there are all focused on statehood, which I think is a really important component of the movement. Because we had even, when we first started going to meetings on the Hill, I'd had a 
a staff member for a representative from Maryland say, look, we hear all these issues that you guys are advocating for. What do the people of D.C. really want? And I think that the fact that it's crystal clear what we want and that 86 percent of us voted for statehood in 2016, I think there's no doubt about what the people of D.C. want. So I think that's the first um, chip that we've we've really made a lot of progress on. I think the second one is is how we've made progress on the Hill. And and I'll say the first time I went to to meet with a, a member of the House Representatives staff at the time, there was one co-sponsor on the statehood bill in the House. And fast forward to a decade, and I'm not saying our group deserves credit for, for all of it. It's, it's the coalition right. of groups that are working on this. But we just passed the statehood bill for the second time in the House of Representatives. Um, that had never happened in the history of this country. So we've made a ton of progress there. And in the Senate, we have 45 known statehood supporters, or really it's 46 known statehood supporters in the United States Senate. So we're very close there. And so we've made that progress on the Hill, and that's the second chip. And then the third chip is people now see this as a national civil rights and voting rights issue. It is now lumped into the larger voting rights movement, which it hadn't been. Um, Too often it has sort of been, been seen as this other issue. And I think Sadly, I mean, we took advantage of this, but sadly, because of vote, the, the attacks on voting rights across the country, it's in state legislatures. I think the larger voting rights community now does see D.C. statehood as a uh, issue of voter suppression of the, the vote of the people in the District of Columbia. Yeah, the the nationalization of this issue is fascinating because that's where you start to get into the roadblocks because on its face, as we established from the start, this is a no-brainer, very logical argument. And even the deeper you dive, it becomes more obvious that it's a racial issue, it's a civil rights issue. But when it becomes national, that's when Republicans are like, nope, it's two Democratic votes in the Senate. And what is right then becomes irrelevant because they have no scruples, morals, etc. And so... What kind of arguments do you try to push back on when or when you meet with, say, a Republican staffer, if they'll even take your calls at this point? But I'm assuming at some point over the last decade they have. What what kind of arguments do you use there? And if someone were to be talking to their it's always the uncle, the Republican uncle. Right. Uh, what what kind of argument would you make if they're like, well, you just want two more Democratic senators? Yeah, no, I mean, it's, you know, honestly, it's been a real struggle talking with Republicans. Um, and I don't mean the actual conversation itself. I mean, actually getting the conversation. Mm. Um, when we started really working, especially in the Senate, when we started doing meetings eight years ago, nine years ago, whenever we would reach out to, if we reach out to 15 Democratic Senate offices, we would reach out to 15 Republican offices. And in large part, we were actually getting the same number of meetings with, with Democrats and Republicans. And two years ago, when we did our um, sort of last in-person lobby day, I reached out to 18 Democratic offices and 18 Republican offices. And we met with 15 Democratic offices. The three that didn't meet with us co-sponsored the bill and said, we don't need to meet with you because we're going to co-sponsor the bill. <laughs> we, only, we only met with three Republican offices. And it's not for a lack of trying. I mean, it really was like they just don't want to, as this issue has gained national prominence, the willingness to engage on it has gotten harder. And so I think, you know, it is not a partisan issue for me. It's about whether whether myself and my family deserve the same vote as you as a Virginian or as the people who live less than half a mile from us in Maryland. And 
And so for us, it's always a personal story that we want to tell, um, that it is a civil rights issue, but we're not naive. We know that that doesn't necessarily sway voters or especially senators who are looking at it from a political calculus perspective. So you do have to make the case that it's constitutional. You do have to actually make the case that it's actually good for the federal government from a budget perspective. Um, but I think that the core issue is it has to be about fairness and it has to be constitutional because the parties have gotten so polarized. Um, and honestly, because we've made so much progress with Democrat support for this, Republicans see it as a large D democratic issue as opposed to a small D democratic issue. And I think we still have to chip away that it's a small D democratic issue. And when you look at somebody like Senator Lisa Murkowski from Alaska, she was born when Alaska was still a territory. She knows what it's like to be in a territory and not have representation in Congress. And was that fair for the people of Alaska then, no matter what their politics were? And the answer is no. And they wanted to be a state and they were admitted to a state. So I think she should, she and other Republicans should apply the same standard that was applied when their states were admitted. You look at the Dakotas, you know, it was one Dakota territory. It was divided into two. So Republicans in DC knew they were going to get four Republicans out of it. Nevada was rushed through the statehood admission process so that they could get three more Republican electoral votes for the election of 1864. I wish, I wish statehood admission wasn't a partisan thing, but let's not pretend that DC statehood is the first time it's being viewed through a partisan lens. It's historically, that's the way it's been viewed too. One thing that I learned actually from your Twitter feed as I was researching for this was that all states that, you know, outside of the first 13 were passed on a simple majority vote. And with the filibuster being such a central I mean, it's the central blockade to basically everything happening in this country, but uh, specifically with it being the the blockade that is currently at the center of the focus in the Senate and the power that Joe Manchin has uh, over that, considering he is the one that is on the wrong side of that, uh, seemingly, or at least most vocally, he has, he has positioned himself that way. How has it been received to get this done on a simple majority vote. And obviously that will play into the fact that currently DC statehood is in a much larger for the people act, uh, which probably would be a lot harder to convince people to pass along a simple majority vote. Yeah, no, I, it's, it's, it's honestly, it's just, it's really fun. It's really hard. I mean, I think what's really funny about the filibuster is you hear the Kirsten cinemas and Joe Manchin's talking about the tradition of the Senate. And I think we need to be very clear that the, the tradition of the filibuster has gotten so um, skewed and bastardized that it's 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 a re- it's it's not what it used to be. Whether it was right in the first place or not is a, is right. is that on a different issue. But if you're a traditionalist, then go back to the traditional use of the filibuster. But also, if you really care about the traditions of the United States Senate, you should care about the tradition that 37 states were admitted to the Union without a filibuster vote on their admission. It's that crystal clear. If you want to talk about tra- the Senate tradition, the Senate tradition of admitting states is a straight up or down vote. And we think that same standard should be applied to the people of D.C. Does that mean they're going to be convinced by that? I doubt it. But I think if you really if, if they're going to keep wielding the word tradition, 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 the tradition of the Senate is a straight up or down vote on statehood admission acts. And I think, um, you know, I, I, I do this because I'm a, I call myself a cynical optimist. Right. I understand the realities of the day, but I'm still optimistic. 
I honestly don't have that much faith that Mitch McConnell is going to be a good faith partner in anything. Oh, come and on, I, Josh. He's bad. There's so much history of that. Come on. Oh, Mitch. And so I, 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 I do think we're You know, I think we're, I think they're going to give, they're going to give all of this some time. And I think, I hope, and I think that they're going to come to the realization is that he is not a good faith partner in, in, in making what's right for our democracy. And I hope they allow some ex- exceptions for the filibuster rule, at least for voting rights re- legislation, whether it's HR one, HR four, or HR fifty one. I think, I think it's push is going to come to shove, and doing nothing is no longer acceptable. Would you push like if you got to meet with Chuck Schumer, obviously Senate Majority Leader? Would you say, look, the the history on this specific thing, state admission, is crystal clear. I think we could get to fifty, and I have. Uh, Vice President Harris, the tie-breaking vote. Can we pull HR 51 out of the For the People Act and get an up or down vote? And would you do that tomorrow? Uh, if one, would you want to make that recommendation? And two, what do you think would happen if that went to an up or down vote in the Senate tomorrow? Yeah, I mean, well, right now it's it is out of it is out of um, HR one. So they they are it, there's an endorsement of statehood in HR one, but the okay, but. HR 51 is a separate bill in the Senate. It's S 51. And yeah, we're making that case, but I do think, I do think our movement and our message is more powerful when we need to push all of these bills together at once. Mm-hmm. I don't think um, pushing HR one, which would be great for our democracy overall. Agreed. I don't think it's enough. I, I don't think you can just do HR one and not do HR four and HR 51. I think, I think there needs to be a reckoning with American democracy and, it, and it's in the United States Senate. And so I think Chuck Schumer needs to show leadership and get his caucus in order. And quite frankly, talk to people like Lisa Murkowski, talk to some Republicans on the other side and say, look, that you know, when your state was admitted, it was a straight up or down vote that, you know, we deserve a rules change on this so that we can get a straight up or down vote. And hopefully they'll vote not just for the rule change, but also for the bill itself. And I think, you know, this is where push comes to show shove. And if you are, if you are a leader, an elected leader, um, not just by the people of your state, but by your 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 caucus in in the Senate, you need to show leadership, and you need to pass some fundamental changes to our democracy to save it. Quite frankly. Yeah, you mentioned you have forty five or forty six. Uh, confirmed yeses basically on dc statehood who are the other four and and what are their holdups on the democratic side of the aisle yeah so the 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 four or five i mean senator shaheen is the one um she co-sponsored the statehood bill last congress but she's not co-sponsoring it this year Mm -hmm. yet we we have no reason to believe that she's actually changed her position it's just sometimes senators take time to co-sponsor bills or Maybe she won't co-sponsor, but she's still going to vote for it. We don't have right. much concern about her. Um, but then we have the two senators from Arizona, Senator Cinema and Senator Kelly. And you know, Senator Cinema, she's a, a co-sponsor of HR one or S one, as are, is Senator Kelly. So it's really good that they are supporting and co-sponsoring these other voting rights pieces of legislation. We haven't um, gotten any signal of where Senator Cinema stands on DC statehood. Senator Kelly's given some some decent uh, responses to the press about where he he sees as an issue of of representation, which is fundamental to our democracy. 
he hasn't said he supports DC statehood yet, but I'd rather him say what he just said than than no comment or or no, I don't support it. Right. Um, and then Senator King over the last year has has really started to move in our direction. Um, I know he's had some constitutional concerns. I think we're, we've moved past that. And really, you know, we're hoping he'll come out in support of the bill in the near future, although I, I don't have any inside information on that. But he, he definitely has had more positive uh, statements in support of it. And then there's Joe Manchin, who um, most recently said he wouldn't support the bill. Um, and, you know, when he gave that statement, there definitely are some inconsistencies based on what he said and what the actual history is. You know, he, he referenced a um, when Robert Kennedy was attorney general in the 1960s, early 1960s, you know, he the attorney general issued a statement that was in opposition to D.C. statehood. But at the time, that statehood bill would make the whole federal district a state and there would be no there would be no federal district as as the Constitution requires. And the statehood bill since the 1970s, you know, 10 years after Bobby Kennedy's statement has had a federal cutout. So there is a non-residential portion of the of the. Um, the, of the federal enclave that would stay as the federal capital and not be aligned with any one state. So we think using Bobby Kennedy's words, the, the Justice Department words from the 1960s as justification, uh, I, ju- I just think it's misapplying the actual history of, of, of the two different pieces of legislation. So we're hoping to, to work with Senator Manchin and, and get him to, to take a second look at this and, and hopefully revise his, his thoughts on it. But it's not going to be easy. Like he's, you know, he's Joe Manchin, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, that's that's about as well as you could put it. He's just Joe Manchin, and uh, whatever Emperor Joe wants, you know, he seems to get these days. Real quick, I, I love to double click, uh, if you will, on that that constitutionality argument because it is one that people like to push back uh, with a lot, and it it's one at first where you read it and you're like, Oh, well that seems to be a legitimate problem. But then once you read the the bill and understand the issue more, it, it's certainly not. So can you explain to people? And, and I, I want you to explain it. Like I could, I understand it, but you're the one who does this full time. So how do you explain it to people when they go, but what about the constitutionality that says the district cannot be uh, assigned to a state because that state would have undue power? Yeah, the Constitution says Congress has the authority to create a federal district not to exceed 10 miles square. And so when when the district was originally formed, it was 10 miles square and it was land that was ceded by Maryland and Virginia unconditionally. And so essentially a diamond was created, a a square turned. um, And so so that was the 10 miles square. It did not exceed as the Constitution requires 10 miles square. If it had been 11 miles square, it would have exceeded what the Constitution requ- or, uh, allows. But in 1846 and 1847, the residents of Alexandria and Arlington were worried that the slave trade was going to be abolished in the federal capital. And so they petitioned Congress and said, we want to go back to the state of Virginia. And Congress wanting to try to sort of stave off the impending civil war by making any concession that they could um, allowed Alexandria and Arlington to go back to Virginia and Virginia accepted that land back. So the size of the federal district was shrunk by legislation in 1846 and 1847. Mm. So what the current statehood bill does is say, well, we're going to shrink that land again. And we're going to, because the federal district cannot exceed 10 miles square. So we're going to follow that. 
and we're going to shrink the federal district to only be the mall, the White House, the Capitol, and a few federal buildings around the, the mall. And that keeps with the Constitution. It follows a historical precedent, but it allows the people of D.C. to have full and equal representation in Congress. And I want to be clear about the other point that people say, which is go back to Maryland. One, we've been separate separate from Maryland longer than Florida has been separate from Spain. So while it sounds, you know, while, while it sounds, while it sounds nice, well, you know, the Virginians that went in Arlington and Alexandria that went back to Virginia, you know, that they had been, many of those people had been born Virginians. It was the difference between 1801 and 1846. It was 45 years. We're over 230 years or yeah, 212 years separate, uh, 220 years separate from, from Maryland. It's a big difference. You know, we have our own local government that operates like a state government. Maryland gave up that land unconditionally. There are no conditions with it. So we don't have to seek their permission to become a state. Congress has a little exclusive legislative authority over D.C., whether I like it or not right now. And if Congress wants to make us a state, they can. So so really, we're following the Constitution um, with this statehood bill and just creating a small federal district that's not aligned with any one state as the founders wanted. Um, and, you know, I think the founders, I mean, the founders, let's be clear, the founders were very flawed. You know, white male property owners were the only people that over 21 were the only people that could vote in the new country. So while they had this grand vision for democracy that was quite frankly revolutionary and, and amazing for its time, it was extremely flawed. So to con- consistently sort of defer to the founders and their view for what a democracy should be really needs to be taken with a grain of salt because you know their, their vision of democracy wouldn't have allowed my wife to vote, wouldn't allow my daughter to vote, wouldn't allow my next door neighbors who are African-American to vote. Like that is a very flawed view of democracy. And so I think we take what the founders did and we try to respect it, but we don't need to follow it to a T. And I think constitutionally, the statehood bill follows their intent with a federal district not exceeding 10 square miles, not being aligned with any one state. And we meet that standard while still allowing 700,000 Americans to have full representation in Congress. I think it's pretty simple. I do too. Uh so that leads to the, uh, I guess, the final question. Me, a Virginian, I called Tim Kaine, I called Mark Warner and say, hey, guys, I, thanks for supporting D.C. statehood, and which, by the way, I should mention, is important, right? It's not just advocating the senators who don't. It's making sure that the senators who do advocate for it realize it's very important to you um, if, if you are someone who has representation and is listening because the things that the Senate offices get calls about are the things that they will push hardest for and can get pushed up in terms of the timeline uh, as as a more important item that could get uh, could get attention faster. That's easy. I have right as of right now, although I am looking eventually to become a district resident. I currently have two senators. If you are someone who is in D.C. like yourself, who does not have that option, what do you do to advocate for yourself? And I would well, I say, think, let me let me rephrase. What what would the average citizen do? You started a whole group that has got uh, a lot, and obviously, I think part of the answer is going to be people can work with your group. But the average citizen who might be listening, what should that person do to advocate for themselves? Yeah, I mean, I think that obviously people can can email me at unitedforstatehood at gmail dot com, and I can and give sort of um, sort of action steps for everybody. But it's pretty simple. If if you live in DC. 
you can always write to these Senate offices on your own who aren't supporting DC statehood and ask that they do. But more importantly, where, where you would really have the most power is by asking friends and family in those states. So if you have friends and family in Arizona, if you have friends and family in Maine or West Virginia or Alaska, ask them to write their senator on our behalf. The other thing that they can do is or ask their friends and family in those states to organize. Um, you know, the virtual world has driven me crazy for a lot of reasons, but it's opened up opportunities. We've been doing teach-ins with small and large groups in these target states so that people can learn about DC statehood so that they can ask those questions so that they can be empowered to really reach out to their, their senators and say, this is why I think you should support this cause. So I think that's really important is that people can ask their friends and family to write their senators, but they could also organize a teach-in with their friends and family and, and like members of our group could actually be the, the featured speakers of that teach-in because we sort of live and breathe this on a, on a, um, daily basis and know most of the issues and also know some of the holdups with these senators. So I think that's really important. And then to your example of Virginians or people in Maryland, I think it is very important that they hear from their constituents, one, to say, thank you for supporting D.C. statehood. It's important to me as your constituent. And then two, you need to do everything possible to push Senate leadership to push this thing forward. Because imagine if we have potentially 50 votes or 51 votes in the U.S. Senate to make D.C. a state, and the bill doesn't even get to the floor for a vote. It's unconscionable in a democracy that 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 the leadership could stand on the sidelines and not push this forward. So I think it's really important that Senators Kane and Warner hear from their constituents to say, hey, look, this is a rare opportunity that we have, and we can't mess it up. If we need to change some rules to make this thing happen right now, we need to change some rules because it's so fundamental to our democracy and our neighbors across the river. You know, let's just get, let's do it. And, you know, don't apologize for it. Agreed. Josh, where can people go to find more information? You mentioned the email address. I'll have you mention that again. And then any Twitter, Instagram website, whatever it is where people can get more information. Yeah. So we have a website, www.the51st.org. And sort of all our information is there. Our organization has a Twitter account at 51st DC. And then my personal Twitter is at jbirchdc, but you'll get all sorts of like wizards and personal stuff along with statehood content there. So the, the real statehood content is at 51st DC. <laughs> but who doesn't enjoy a good Russell Westbrook inspired wizards meme? Exactly. <laughs> Josh, this was great. Really appreciate the time and uh, good luck with the continued work. And uh, hopefully this, this podcast is a small piece of support uh, in getting the word out and uh, anything else that we'll do. I, I'll keep calling Kane and Warner. Guys, let's go. Let's get this going. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for all your help. No, this, is, this is great. Thanks for having me on.